0: Let's pray together. Lord God, we as always come before you amazed at your word, amazed at the applicability of it, the specificity of it, and the way that it needs to be worked out for generation after generation, for culture after culture, to say, how do we obey you? How do we seek after you? And so illumine our hearts again today as we look at the Word and as we try to live it in our lives through the power of the Spirit who works through this living and active Word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have all recognized something that is common to, I I guess, all of our children, most of our children, and, and that is this, that as soon as they learn to speak, amongst the first words that they speak is the word, mine. And amongst the first sentences that they are able to articulate, especially if they have brothers or sisters, is, that's mine. We care about our stuff. From a very early age, we love our stuff, we love our things, and we are upset when someone takes... Our stuff or deprives us of the use of our things. Now, interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly to us, God cares about our stuff as well. He cares about our things, at least according to the eighth commandment, He does. In fact, the last three commands have made it pretty clear that God cares about things physical in this world. Don't kill. Don't take a life. Don't commit adultery. And now this command. Last week was Easter. We spoke of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and our bodily resurrection in Christ, all of which is to say that Jesus cares not only for our heart, but for us physically as well, and to at least some degree, enough to put it within the Ten Commandments ourselves itself, he cares for our possessions, and thus we have the Eighth Commandment saying, do not steal. Now, I want you to take out your bulletins for a second, and I want you to turn in your bulletins to page six, page six and seven of the bulletins that you have today. Uh, as you know, as we've worked through the Ten Commandments, I have... Uh, usually in our affirmation of faith, given us something from either the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism reflecting on the commandments. If you are visiting with us today, uh, we are a confessional church, which is to say we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we believe that you can summarize various th- teachings of the Bible, and we do that in these historic creeds of the church. The Westminster Confession from the 1640s and the Heidelberg Catechism from the 1560s. they an explanation of what we believe. Well, today what I would like to do, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here, because I would like to read for you from the larger catechism. Now, the larger catechism is larger, and it is complex, and the language is a little bit arcane in it. So I didn't want to have us do that as a corporate affirmation, because it gets it gets hard to do that, frankly. But I'm going to read it for you at the risk of... of Uh, follow along with me. That's what I'm saying. Just would you you read along with it? I know it'll be hard, but, but just follow along with me. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. A provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition. A lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. I'm going to do the other one too. I'm going to do the next one. What is forbidden in the eighth commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, which is to say kidnapping, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, Unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them envying at the prosperity of others as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding others of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. I love that. I love it. It's It's an incredible summary of what is required and what is forbidden in this commandment. And as this sermon moves along a little bit, I will reflect on various aspects of it. Now, if you've got your Bibles, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to turn now to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 in particular. We will read next week probably a longer section from Ephesians chapter 4 as we reflect on the Ninth Commandment, and if you would like to know more of the context of Ephesians chapter 4, Tommy is preaching through Ephesians in the evening, and I think in two or three weeks we'll be looking at Ephesians 4 together. For now, you'll have to take this brief summary that Paul in Ephesians 4 is applying to the church the ethics of the Ten Commandments and particularly as well the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So those two things seem to be prominent in his mind as he is preparing the church and and teaching the church how to live in Christ. Let me read for us verse 28. It says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, if you'll allow me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow that text to be for us a little mini structure here right in the middle of this sermon. Let me just work our way through it. First of all, let the thief no longer steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. There's a presupposition that comes from this command, whether or not it is in its New Testament form or its Old Testament form. And that, of course, is the idea of ownership and the associated rights that come with ownership. Something can belong to you. It can be your possession. So, that's the case, actually, with all of the the previous two commandments and this one as well. Don't kill someone because that life doesn't belong to you. Don't commit adultery because that spouse doesn't belong to you. That spouse belongs to someone else. And don't take anything that doesn't belong to you as well. The Bible upholds the idea of ownership in this world... But whenever we say that, we must always understand that the Bible upholds the idea of relative ownership in this world. Because all of the belonging that we can talk about in Scripture, all of the possessing of things that we can talk about in Scripture, has as its source the covenant that God has made with humanity. What God says is, In that covenant relationship, and we'll come back to this in just a moment, is you're mine. I'm taking possession of you. You are my treasured possession. The earth is mine and the fullness thereof. And think about this now God is preparing the people, God is giving to Israel the nation a particular land, a particular part of his earth. He is giving it to them. It will be their possession. But then as soon as he gives it to them, we recognize that it becomes a partitioned possession for them. So each one of the tribes has his particular place that they can say, this is our area given to our tribe. And then within That particular tribal area, you have families assigned to various pieces of land within that tribal area. Relative ownership, whose land is it? Well, maybe maybe this particular square belongs to me, but it belongs to my tribe, but it belongs to Israel as a whole, but really it belongs to God. Relative ownership is what they, what we experienced. Ownership is important. It is real, but it is always relative. To put it in the words of Paul and to think about it in light of that New Testament teaching, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. None of the possessions that I call mine, that you call yours in this world, can be taken with you, are Paul's point. And it, that ought to put some perspective on the way that we look at ownership in the world. And, and it does indeed. That's why when we talk about Christian ownership we find ourselves oft times using the word stewardship. Stewardship over the things that have been entrusted to us. Things are presently mine, but they're not ultimately mine. Not exclusively, not only my thing. Now that all said, understanding ownership, understanding relative ownership, thieves shouldn't steal. What does that mean? who who is he talking about here? Now, it certainly includes guys who break into your house at night and they wear little black raccoon-type masks over their eyes so that they're hidden in terms of who they might be. That's true. A thief can look something like that. But even in the passages that I read from Exodus 21 and 22, it's very clear that there's a much broader application about what we're talking about when we're talking about the right use of stuff that belongs to us or that belongs to someone else. And so it includes children, and it certainly includes people who wear white collars as well. We ought not rob our employer of our time or our energy. Employers ought not rob employees of good wages, of opportunity, of dignity in work. Companies ought not take advantage of individuals, and individuals ought not take advantage of companies. Can I give you one very mundane example of this so that this just isn't out in the theoretical world somewhere? So you know that uh, I work at I don't work for, but I work at Panera in the mornings, and I love to do study work there, sermon work there, preparation work there, but I have said to them, listen, I know that sometimes you want to kick people out who sit here with one cup of coffee all day, and if you want to kick me out, just kick me out at some point so that I don't take up your table. Now, the reality is there are not a lot of people there at that time. The tables are never full, but I make sure to leave right before lunchtime when the tables are start, starting to fill up because otherwise I feel like I'd be taking advantage of a company. The principles here, don't take advantage of individuals, don't take advantage of companies, and companies don't do it either from your perspective. Don't take advantage of people in need. Don't give exorbitant interest. Don't keep the cloak overnight. If you've taken the cloak as a down payment on something, don't keep it overnight. You can only have it for a few hours. Think of, for a moment, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. I don't know, I guess it was a year ago when we were in Luke chapter 19 talking about that beloved story. And Zacchaeus, he's not a guy who wears a mask. He's a tax collector. But he recognizes as he comes to Jesus and as he stands before him that, in fact, he is one who has defrauded others. And he says, if I've defrauded anyone, which in this case is true, I'm going to repay them four times what I took from them. And so Paul's instruction here to the church, let the thief no longer steal. But Paul continues, what should you do instead? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. In other words, instead of taking advantage of other people, instead of being an abuser, of other people, the thief should become a producer. This is not only in the redemptive sense. This is not only a way to say that the thief can be forgiven or that the thief needs to pay something back. It is that. But likewise, Paul is giving to the thief something deeply humanizing. He is reconnecting the thief with the purpose for which mankind, man and woman, have been created. Namely, to produce, to work, to make of that which has been entrusted to them. He realigns the life of the thief by saying, work with your hands. Now, using the words of the catechism or that we just read... Paul's exhortation is to secure a lawful calling. Secure something you can do that is tangible, that is practical, be it ever so simple work that you would do with your hands. Now, we recognize that some work that can be done with the hands is very delicate work, the work of a surgeon, and there's other work that you do with your hands that's not delicate at all. That's just digging or just moving something. But you use those hands to do it. And appreciate here the symmetry of what Paul is saying. Hands are things that can be used to take. They're the, they're the instruments of the thief. Not, on, not the only instruments, but they're the instruments of a thief. Paul's saying, I, I want to reuse the things that are right in front of you. I want to now employ those in producing something with these very hands that have been given to you by God use them for that purpose. Now, how should you do the work that has been given to you? How should this redeemed thief do his work? Well, he should do it lawfully, a lot of the things that are written in the catechism as well, with truth, with faithfulness, with justice in contracts and commerce, with, uh, with true weights and measures. I've been to a market in London and right across from the top of the Market false weight is an abomination to the Lord, with truth and with justice and all the things that we do. To what end should the work be done of this former thief? Well, I'm not going to go into this. You can look at Ephesians six. This is stuff we, we've heard from other portions of Scripture. He should do it to the end of the glory of God. All of our work, whatever it is, whatever, whether it's a great work that he's doing with his hands, an artistic work that he's doing with his hands or whether it's just a, a very common work that he's doing with his hands, do it to the glory of God. And Paul writes about that in Ephesians 6, 5 and following. But let me go back for a moment to the end of the larger catechism. Take that back out for a moment, Six, uh, page 6 and 7. We have this responsibility, and this is the very last phrase that starts right at the top of page 7, to endeavor... By all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estates of others as well as our own. Hear that clearly. The Lord commands you to procure, preserve, and further wealth. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.18, you don't have to turn to it right now, Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, it is the Lord who gives you the power to produce wealth that he may confirm his covenant with you. In a few minutes, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, this meal right here it's a covenant meal. The Lord is confirming his covenant with us in this meal in a particular way. That said, there are many other mundane ways in this life, seemingly mundane to us, but significant in God's economy by which he says to you, the covenant that I've made with you is a sure and steadfast covenant. And when you go to work and you do your work and whatever that work is, when you do it and you bring home your paycheck— That is not just a contractual thing that has happened in this world. That is God saying to you, my covenant is sure. I've given you the ability to make wealth. It's a sign for you. It's an everyday sign, but it's a sign for you that I'm the one who has done this. Be your work, be your wealth, little or great. It doesn't make a difference as it relates to this particular principle of covenant confirmation. When you receive your paycheck, here's the statement that God is making to you. You belong to me. That's covenant confirmation. You belong to me. And the reason you just got that check in your hand is because you belong to me. I've given you in my covenant the power to make wealth. Let it sink in for a moment. And here it put in the reverse. Question 142 is 142 brings it to an end, what is forbidden in the requirement. It puts it in the reverse saying this. All other ways, and these are what is forbidden, all other ways whereby we do unjustly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort Of that estate which God has given to us. Now you're going to have to sit and you're going to have to think about that a little bit. God forbids you to foolishly use what He has given to you for your enjoyment, for your sustentation, as it said in that other phrase there, and a word that we don't certainly use very much. God doesn't want you to make foolish financial decisions. He doesn't want you to make absurdly risky investments. He doesn't want you to spend foolishly. He doesn't want you to build a plywood shed and live in it because you think it will make you a more spiritual person, thus divesting yourself of the foolish trappings of this world. That is not God's command to you. He doesn't want you to stop working and just wait for his return, as some of the Thessalonians were guilty of doing. He doesn't want the thief, now listen to this, to stop world hunger. He doesn't say to the thief, listen, you, you have to become the champion of ending world poverty. The instruction that Paul gives to this thief is far more simple than that. Maybe there are people who are called specifically to tremendous works on behalf of the world for the relief of poverty and for the relief of the afflicted, but to a thief, and that is to say to most of us, here's the call. Go and work with your hands. Procure, secure, and further your wealth. In general, God wants people to work and he wants people to make wealth. A, a Dutch theologian is one that I've quoted a couple of times. Dalma wrote, wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. God wants us to be able to enjoy our wealth. And I know we hear that with like lots of zeros after it. Just You can hear it with a dollar. God wants us to be able to enjoy our wealth without an aftertaste. That make sense? Without an aftertaste. Without that sense hanging right behind you, I'm guilty. I should have done something else with this. I shouldn't have had the hamburger. I should have had beans. And I could have used the other 95 cents for this or that or the other thing. No aftertaste. Having said that, a trust that all of us are acutely aware, right? You can't be unaware of the monumental temptation that this sets before us. The great and incredible idolatry of wealth is not pretend and it's not imaginary for any culture, any people, anywhere, at any time. And it's certainly not imaginary for us. Idolatry of wealth is pandemic. It is proverbial. It is almost cliche. So hear what Paul says. 428. I'm going to read the whole verse now. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Work for the glory of God. Work to provide for yourself. Work so that you can have something, whatever the amount, to give, to share with Others. In other words, Paul says, I want you to do the complete opposite of what you used to do. The opposite of steal is give. I want you to become not only a producer, I want you to become a giver on behalf and to other people. The Heidelberg Catechism gets at this. It's at the bottom of page 7. It seems to me to be a summary uh, of, of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What does God require of you in this commandment? This is Heidelberg 111. That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. That's what I'm required to do. Stated beautifully, stated simply, stated personally. Westminster requires of us to take into account not only ourselves, but others. Now, here's the way it was in the larger catechism, that we pr- procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward state estate of others as well as our own. In the shorter catechism, it says this, The Eighth Commandment require the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Now, I don't know if you caught that right there. You can look at it on the two pages there. The order is reversed. The the shorter catechism begins with ourselves and then goes to others. The larger catechism says you do it for others and then for ourselves. Now, I don't know why. I, I don't know why that is. I mean, if I were writing them, the reason I would do it is just to get people to think. I just reversed the order just to make you make you think a little bit. Maybe that's the reason that they reversed the order of the two in that place. But note this thinking of others' welfare and thinking of others' wealth and the development of others' wealth, working to further their wealth is not an afterthought. Nor is it a mere byproduct of economic self-interest. Let that sink in, folks who have read Adam Smith a little bit. Sink it in a little bit. It is not just a byproduct. The statement of Paul isn't, be as selfish as you can, be as interested in yourself as you possibly can, and that will be good for others. It's to take it into account. It is to think carefully about how I promote the estate of another. That has got to be for us a deliberate, active, and conscious part of our work decisions and even of our purchasing decisions. I don't want to make this... I'm going to be out of my league in like one sentence... Can I say that? All right, I'll say it. Uh, So, if my neighbor owns a hardware store, let's just say that my next door neighbor owns a hardware store. And I have a question of whether I'm going to buy a rake from my neighbor who owns a local hardware store or from somebody who owns a hardware store and lives in Arkansas, theoretically. What do I choose? Well, I don't know that I always have to make the same decision about that. I don't know we have a this must be always done this way. But certainly the point here is I've got to take that into account. I've got to think not only of what is best for me, buying the rake for $9.99 or buying the rake for $12.99, but I've got to think as well about what is best for my neighbor. Maybe the answer is different as you work through that issue. But nevertheless, there it is. Think carefully about those things. Now now go back for a moment. Jacob stole from Esau. Stole from his brother. Now the first time, stealing of the birthright, that was kind of Esau's fault, but it was Jacob's fault as well. Okay, so Jacob should have just given him the stew and Esau shouldn't have sold his birthright. They're both wrong, but Jacob steals from him. The second time, there's nothing that Esau has to do with it. Jacob steals the blessing from Esau. Israel has been in slavery. They're coming out of Egypt where the Egyptians had effectively been stealing their liberty, their life, their wealth for generations. God is now establishing a covenant community in which there is to be in this covenant community a shared land, a shared inheritance, and a shared blessing. He doesn't want you to fight with your brother about who will get it. Instead, work with your brother. Instead, share with your brother. Do you see how different that is from Jacob and Esau? Do you see the difference of that? The father of Israel is Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and he was a thief, I don't want you fighting with your brother. I don't want you fighting with your namesake, like your namesake. Because we are members, and you're becoming members, of the same covenant community. See, God doesn't want Israel to think of a contractual obligation that they have with one another. What he wants them to understand is that they, as his people, as his nation, are in covenant relationship with one another. And that's different than a contractual, I'll do this and I'll do that. God is saying, you're covenantally related together. You are together, and therefore, we are joint heirs. We are fellow heirs. We are co-beneficiaries of the covenant of grace. That's for Israel. How much more is it true for us, the church? Our elder brother... Jesus Christ came into this world. He is the only legitimate, the only true, the only appropriate heir of the fortunes of his father. And he came into the world not to steal the inheritance from us, not to trick us out of a blessing, put on human clothes, make himself look like a man. Trick humanity. Rather, he worked for us in order that he might secure and share his inheritance with us. He has secured for us and will give to us, in the words of Paul. All things. All things. Because all things, be they spiritual things or physical things, all things belong to Him. And by faith and the working of the Holy Spirit, you're in Him. You and I don't need to steal because in Him all things will be ours. We don't need to steal because, in the words of the Sermon on the Mount, quoted from the Psalms, the meek will inherit the earth. He made Israel Yahweh made Israel his treasured possession. Listen to the language. His treasured possession. That's Exodus 19. This is the way Sinai starts. You're my treasured possession. Tell the people, they're my treasured possession. Of all the things that I treasure, I treasure Israel. In fact, I give Israel this status collectively My firstborn son. I give you that status. It's yours. You're the firstborn. I've given you everything. They were. We are. It is extended. It is expanded to the church. It creates and goes over all of the nations. We are his treasured possession. The stuff that he loves the most. The stuff that he wants the most. Is our flesh. And blood. By covenantal grace, the reverse is also true. He has become our treasured possession. He has become for us the pearl of great price. Sell everything else, get the pearl. That's the value. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's, my beloved is mine. That is why, in the Sermon on the Mount, after much reflection on wealth, Jesus says this, I know, and your heavenly Father knows, that you need stuff. We know it. We know that you need all of these things that everybody needs and everybody goes after. We know you need that. Would you please stop worrying about that for a moment? Please stop worrying yourself sick about all of the stuff that you need. I know you need it. And better than that, the Father who gives all things knows you need it. You, instead, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, they'll be yours. They'll be yours as well. That's God's economy. That's the way it works. And because that's true, don't steal, work, and share. Let's pray.